Welcome to another fantastic session of the Murthy Teleconference. Today's topic is Perm in a Tough Economy. I am Sheila Murthy, the CEO of the Murthy Law Firm. Thanks so much for joining us today. Consistent with our standard practice and policy, the conference today, as with all of our other materials, written or verbal, are copyrighted materials of the Murthy Law Firm. Accordingly, no recording is permitted without the prior written permission of the law firm. Getting to today's topic, I have with me an amazing panel of two amazing, smart, bright lawyers here at the Murthy Law Firm, attorney Aaron Finkelstein and Pam Janice. Aaron Finkelstein, whom many of you have heard from before, has completed his uh, bachelor's degree from the University of Maryland and his, mass, and his J JD or law degree, I say master's because law is really like a master's program, the JD or the law degree from the University of Baltimore Law School. He was an honor student at the University of Maryland and actually is the managing attorney of the Murthy Law Firm. He has been with us 10 plus years, just celebrated his 10, 10 year anniversary at the Murthy Law Firm we're so proud, delighted, and honored to have him uh, with his decade-long years of experience here, plus another half a dozen-plus years' experience working as an immigration attorney and a law clerk with his prior law firm. The other amazing attorney on today's panel to discuss the perm in a tough economy is Pam Janice. Pam completed her education from the George Washington Law School in the Washington, D.C. area. She had worked in Washington, D.C. for several years before joining our law firm. She is the supervising attorney in the Green Card Department. In fact, both Aaron Finkelstein and Pam Janice teach the employment-based, the first ever employment-based immigration law course at the University of Baltimore Law School. I am honored to have them here, and today we're going to try to discuss some of the sorts of issues that you as employers are asking, scratching your heads, and wondering about in this economy. So, Aaron, the question that I know I get asked a lot, and I suspect all of us get asked a lot, is, gee whiz, is now the right time? When should I file my labor certification? Isn't this a really rough and tough economy to process? What do you think? Well, I'll tell you the simple answer is, if not now, when? When you look at your employees, and you look at people that are coming to six-year maxes on their H-1Bs, they're completing their fifth year and beginning to enter the sixth year or a little bit before that. You look at employees that have been with you for two or three years that are beginning to, so to speak, chomp at the bit, asking, when can I start, when can I start? And you look at employees that have come over in the AC-21 category where they've come and ported their case to you, and now they find that, hey, I'm from India, my priority date is a priority date that would be current for EB-2, but they filed my case for EB-3. This new senior position that I've taken with your company is clearly an EB-2 type of position. I want to be able to upgrade and to keep my priority date. When you take all of these types of considerations into account, you find that there is a lot of pressure and there's a lot of sense to at least put a toe in the water and to get a feeling for whether or not you can go forward and whether or not it will be successful. One thing that we have seen is that while there is a double-digit unemployment rate and there is no way that you can deny that that looks like that that is something strong to consider, 
we have found that when you start to drill down and look beneath it and say, yes, there's a double-digit 10% unemployment rate overall, but what is it in Maryland? What is it in, in Ohio? What is it in Virginia? And you start looking and saying, well, these rates all vary. They're all slightly different. You start looking at what is it for software engineers? What is it for IT professionals as compared for other professions? And you start to see that that number starts to become smaller and smaller and the viability of the case appears to become bigger and bigger. Aha. Uh-huh. And, you know, actually, I think, I think it was CNN uh, a couple months ago where they said that the, even though the nationwide unemployment is over 10% generally, the fact is for college graduates, it's apparently less than 6%. And for those with a master's degree, it's actually 2 or 3%. And historically, it's been shown that anything less than 6% unemployment is really zero or negative because apparently this is just a statistic, a number, the way it works from an economic or statistics viewpoint. Now, I'm not an economic uh, person or a statistician, but I'm sure many of our smart, bright clients in the high-tech field can appreciate what these numbers really mean because apparently people aren't seriously, really, truly looking because there's a number that's just viewed, and that 6% is really the equivalent of 0% unemployment. Um, So it's all very interesting, and the fact is there is absolutely still a need in certain high-tech areas, and we, you all, who run businesses, run companies, know that even we, when we run advertisements for attorneys in immigration law with 10, 15-plus years of experience, we get a couple resumes, but for whatever reason, either knowledge-wise or attitude-wise, that's not the person we want to bring on board, and so that's not that unusual in any business. Thank you, Aaron. Thank you for that uh, sort of overview on why it's now is the time to file uh, a, a labor certification, even though there's high unemployment. So, so Pam, can you explain when a company says, well, not only has it been a tough and rough e- economic climate, but my company itself has had layoffs. What does that mean for a company? If they've had layoffs, when can they file their perm? What are the rules? What are the do's and don'ts? Thank you, Sheila. This is actually something that we get a lot of calls about from employers that are concerned. They've they've had layoffs in the past, or they think that this may be a possibility in the future. It's a very uncertain time for a lot of companies, and so a lot of times I think that there is a little bit of fear associated with, we've had layoffs, we can't go forward. And what's important to know is that layoffs are important to address in the context of a PERM labor certification case. But you need to be very specific about the situation that's involved. And so that's why it's even more important to talk with a competent attorney that knows what all of the requirements are, what the regulations are, and how they apply to your situation. And what layoffs mean for PERM is that the regulations require that if the employer has had a layoff of a U.S. worker in a related occupation in the area of intended employment within the six months Prior to filing a labor certification, the employer needs to, number one, disclose that information, and number two, demonstrate that the company attempted to notify the U.S. worker of the job opportunity and that those individuals were properly considered for that position. Okay, so if a company has tell somebody goodbye because the person was incompetent or not performing the job properly, is that a layoff? That's not considered a layoff in the context of a labor certification case. A layoff is an involuntary separation of a worker without cause. So if a person is terminated for cause, that's not considered a layoff. 
But if any person, even just one person, it doesn't have to be, you know, hundreds hundreds of people. If one person is um, involuntarily let go from a position without cause, that's considered a layoff. Okay, Aaron, you're dying to say something. Well, I was just going to mention that I've seen employers in the past who have been so you know, polite and concerned about making an issue with their particular employees, that what they'll do is they'll say to an employee, well, we're discontinuing a position, or, well, we have to lay you off, and one or two employees this will happen to. And the reality is when you speak to the employer in that situation, you find out that the reality is that the person was actually performing horribly and that they were going to terminate or let the person go. They were going to fire the person but that they didn't want it to go down in a certain inappropriate type of way, so they use that as kind of an excuse. And I think realizing legally that there is a term of art for layoffs, you have to be very careful if that type of circumstance comes up so that one doesn't get confused with the other. Okay, very good. And Pam, coming back to the definitions, you've explained what is a layoff. You mentioned a couple other very interesting terms. You said something about a related occupation, and the area of intended employment, because those are two other critical factors with respect to layoffs for a perm. What is the definition of a related occupation? How does that apply for an employer? And what do you mean by an area of intended employment? Thank you, Sheila. These are very specific terms that are spelled out in the regulations. And so it's very important to identify the position, the nature of the position, the job duties, and where the position is going to be performed when you're making this analysis. As far as the specific terms are defined, a related occupation means any position that involves a majority of the essential duties involved in the sponsored position. So sometimes employers will say, oh, well, you know, I had, I've laid off 30% of my workforce, but none of them were in technical positions. So if you can look at the positions that were terminated and the job duties that were performed by those positions and compare them with the sponsored position, you can make a determination whether or not they're related occupations. If they're not related occupations, then it's not a layoff for the purpose of this labor certification case. As far as the area of intended employment, that's a little bit more nebulous. The area of intended employment is generally defined as the geographic area where the offered position will be performed, including normal commuting distance. And normal commuting distance is not defined. So in that kind of circumstance, it's generally a good idea to look at the metropolitan statistical area that the position falls within and use that as your safe harbor. And then beyond that, it's always a good idea to lean on the conservative side. Is, is the position within 50 miles? That may be considered normal cons- commuting distance. If the position is 100 miles away, that's not likely to be considered. Okie dokie. Thank you, Pam. Aaron, coming back to the issue of time frames. You know, we talk about time frames. I know there are some exceptions that apply. The employer says, gee, if I wait the entire six months, what happens to my candidate whose H-1B is expiring in the next little over a year apart away? You know, can I get started with some of the other preliminary stuff, the advertisements? What does it really mean? And what are the options for a business, a company, an employer um, when the layoffs uh, occur? 
Well, thank you, Sheila. The first thing that you would do is you would look at the six-month, when a layoff happens, the first thing you would say is I have a moratorium or a period of time that I cannot file a case, submit the case to the Department of Labor. That period of time is a six-month period of time. It's six months um, after the date of the layoff. After that six-month period, you would be in a position to go ahead and to, um, and to file a case to the Department of Labor. The six-month period of time does not cover does not cover the advertisements. So, for example, if you have a timing issue involved where you really need to file somebody as quickly as possible, you need to get the person filed on with after the six months, but you don't have time to wait another two months or three months to complete a recruitment effort, what you may be able to do is perhaps in the fourth month that you're waiting to go ahead and to initiate your advertisements and to determine if there are qualified U.S. workers there so that you can complete the recruitment effort. And once the six-month period of time for layoffs to complete is over, you would then be in a position to go ahead and to go forward. Another option that you may have is you may have the option. So one option is to wait the six months, a second a full six months, and then initiate and go forward with your recruitment and with filing. A second option is the possibility, if you need to, to start the recruitment after four months. A third option is to look at the industry or area, as Pam was discussing, the, if it's, for example, IT professionals, you'd look to see were the layoffs in the IT industry. Did the, if the company laid off, for example, receptionists or the company laid off administrative people but did not lay off IT industry people or the particular in- industry that you're advertising for, perhaps then you would say there have no, been no layoffs in this particular area and the person could possibly go forward. Finally, there's the option to consider, which is to offer the job back to some of the, to any of the available laid-off workers. So you'd get your list of people that were laid off. You'd say, here's the particular job that we are currently um, looking to advertise for, that we're currently looking to go forward. Would any of you guys be interested in adverti- in considering this position? And if the qualified U.S. workers come back and say no, or we've already found a position, or we're no longer available, you would then have the option to also be able to proceed. Okay. Um, I guess then if the employer obviously has more layoffs in the middle, then it's from the last day of the last layoff in the same or related occupation six months. So that can be a problem if there's layoffs. If you're terminating a person as an employer or a business because of non-performance, because for cause, for insubordination, for issues like that, you don't want to call it a layoff because that's going to create problems from a firm perspective, uh, as both Aaron and Pam have explained or alluded to. Um, you also have the, the whole issue of being strategic and smart because if you've not had a layoff for six months, um, then you plan it. And if it's two or three months before the six months, you start running the ads, you keep your package ready, you complete all your recruitment, do everything, and literally you can file it the next day after the full six months are over. And that way you don't have a problem with the Department of Labor rules. You don't have an issue as a company with any of the other rules. But you protect yourself and your company and your business, and you are fair and appropriate with all of your, um, uh, you know, recruitment efforts. Some people actually say they say man plans and God laughs. So I'm not planning on a layoff, but I don't know what's going to happen in 2010. What happens if I do my ads, I get my recruitment complete, I file my cases, and then two or three months later, 
uh, within a six-month period after I filed the case, for example, all of a sudden I felt the need to lay off or to allow people to go because of issues that we're having in the company. And the answer is in that situation, the layoff period that's being considered is only prior to the time of filing the labor certification or the PERM application. So if you actually file the case and there's a change of circumstances afterwards that requires you to lay people off, those cases can still pen. They can still go forward. Aha. Uh-huh, okay. And tell me, what exactly, who are the kinds of people or who are the people that an employer is required by law to contact during the perm recruitment process because if they get a bunch of resumes, is it the prior employees, who are all the different kinds of people? Well, the different kinds of people that you're required to to contact are any qualified U.S. workers. Uh, Qualified U.S. workers, people that are authorized to work in the United States without sponsorship, Uh, people that are qualified that meet the minimum education and experience requirements dictated for the particular position. So those would be the people that that are required to be quali- that are required to be contacted. Now, if you know my my theory is when in doubt, interview. If you're not sure if a person is qualified, if you can't tell from the face of the resume, if you're uncertain as to how to proceed, the best thing to do is to contact the person to schedule the interview and to clarify their qualifications and to make sure that you're not disqualifying anybody inappropriately. So if they clearly don't qualify, then you'd have no obligation. If they clearly don't qualify, you would have no obligation. But it's better, right, clearly don't qualify, no obligation, absolutely correct. If somebody's on on the fence, it's always better to do the interview just in case later on you never know in this in this time if there's going to be possible Department of Labor asking for more clarification. You just want to err on the side of doing something in a little bit more conservative fashion. Okay, and the issue that you just pointed out that if the person has to be interviewed only if the person is a U.S. citizen or a U.S. worker or a lawful permanent resident – Where's that in the law? Because we, you get asked that all the time. People say, hey, can you tell me? Do I have to? Where's that written? Well, actually, oh, actually, that is the fundamental purpose of the law. It's in the preamble, and it's throughout everywhere that you look at the regulation. The whole purpose of labor certification is to protect qualified U.S. workers from this concept of people coming in and taking over jobs. That's the basis of labor certification. So if you ask where is it in the law, it's clearly written throughout the regulation. It even talks, for example, if you look at what talks about advertisements in 20 CFR 656.17, talks about you can't state wages that are uh, that are less beneficial to the – you can't have wages on the labor certification that are more beneficial to the foreign national than they are to the qualified US, to a qualified U.S. workers, when it talks about um, stating minimum requirements in the advertisements, the minimum requirements can't be minimum requirements that are stated that would um, that would t- cause U.S. workers to not want to apply for the position. All of these types of things are basically the fundamental of what's throughout the labor certification process. Okay, and what if the employer cannot uh, the, uh, contact certain employees? After a layoff, what happens? If an employer cannot contact certain employees after, the, after a layoff, the employer should be able to document the good faith attempt 
um, generally certified mail return receipt is a good idea, that they've made attempts to contact them and that for through no fault of their own that they were unable to contact them. And that should be something that would be sufficient to demonstrate to the Department of Labor. Okay. Now, Pam, I know this is a hot topic. It really annoys people because one of the main reasons that PERM was introduced into the law was for quick, fast, expedited, sweet, fast process. What we're seeing and what every company in the country is seeing when you're processing PERM's cases for the green card for employees is that almost every second case or more is being subject to a U.S. Department of Labor audit. What is the current trend? What's the statistics? What's going on? I know we process you know, hundreds, if not thousands, of cases each year at the Murthy Law Firm. And what are the trends that we're seeing, both from what Department of Labor is sharing with us and what we are seeing internally in our own practice with respect to audits? And where do you see light at the end of this dark, long tunnel? Thank you, Sheila. There does seem to be both good news and bad news in terms of recent trends with Department of Labor. We seem to have moved back to the random system of issuing audits as opposed to, you're correct, there was a period of time there where they were issuing targeted audits, especially on the issue of business necessity, with the result of close to 50% of cases, it seemed like, were being audited. And now we seem to have been to return to a random series of audits being issued and not quite at the same high rate. However, coupled with that, we're now seeing an increase in second audits. These are where there was an audit previously back in 2007, 2008, and was responded to. And now Department of Labor is coming back saying, give us this additional information. Um, Things like, now show us the person's qualification. Now show us the resumes and the reasons for disqualification. Um, Now show us uh, proof of this additional posting that that we didn't request previously. They are issuing more of these second audits. And the reason that they're issuing more second audits is because they feel the economy has changed from 2007 to 2009? I think it's more along the lines of they're trying to get a greater degree of information because at the same time we're also seeing that the initial audits that we're receiving are more specific in requesting the documents they want. Things like asking as part of the initial audit for resumes or asking for proof of the beneficiary's qualifications. So in a way I think Department of Labor is trying to get a clearer picture of what employers have been doing that they weren't getting from the initial audit. I wish that they had included that as part of the initial audit two years ago, but unfortunately they've decided to do so at the end. The good news is is that we are seeing fairly quick turnarounds from the second audits, um, within a few weeks even. So that's good news, is the, the fact that they're not, you're not seeing a continued another two-year delay after a second audit. Also, we're seeing increased denials for novel issues. These are being reported to us from um, individuals that call in looking for help. They're being reported on the forums. There seems to be... I'm sorry to interrupt, Pam, but those are not Murthy Law Firm cases, correct? (laughs) No, I'm talking about trends that we're seeing overall. (laughs) What we're seeing also is that there seems to be a lack of discretion that, for example, um, a case of the employer returned the signature pages of the ETA 9089 form, but not the complete form. 
tiny things like that where there would be, in a case of discretion, it would be easy for the employer to provide those. Department of Labor doesn't seem to be exercising that discretion. So we're seeing an increased uh, rate of denial, I think, than in past years. Aha. You know, and it comes back to the issue, you know, whether you're the employer, the company, the HR, or the company attorney, you know, please don't try to be super smart and over clever or cheap to photocopy a few extra pages or on the side of giving the government a little more documentation. When they ask you for the signed ETA forms, give them the whole form, even if it means copying an extra 10 or 20 pages, because the last thing you want to have happen is photocopying one page, sending it back, then getting a denial. Your employee has lost two valuable years of time. The company has lost thousands and thousands of dollars in legal fees and newspaper advertisement costs. And everybody's unhappy and mad as hell uh, about something that could have easily been avoided with usually some of these silly things. We try not to, we're smart, we're aggressive, we're proactive. We'd like to think we're very smart lawyers. And part, I think, of being a smart, good lawyer is knowing when to be very clever and creative and when to just follow the rules or on the side of caution, give them more paperwork, give them everything they want and a little bit more when they required and being clever when it's a weak case not to give something that you know is going to harm the client. But, but, but be clever about how you do it. And if you're not sure how to do it, work with the best law firms in the world like the Murthy Law Firm and to guide you and help you in this process. Okay. Uh, I think uh, what we're saying is that Department of Labor is looking at these cases with a fine-tooth comb. They are looking at the little tiny details. And so it's even more important to be really careful when you're preparing the case to build that strong foundation so that when you get an audit, you don't have to be panic-stricken about how is Department of Labor going to view this. Okie dokie. Now, I know we've been reading, and in fact, I think just this afternoon, there were a bunch of memos and a bunch of information that was coming out uh, about new developments with respect to prevailing wages for the green card process is separate from the H-1B, which I know has been dealing with a bunch of its own process, and that there's a new system that's becoming effective, I believe, from January the 1st, which really becomes January the 4th, because 1st, 2nd, and 3rd are Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, all public holidays. So the 4th of January, which is a Monday, is the new day, new rule, new effective system, mail, and then online, and all kinds of funky stuff that's going on. What, what is it that employers should know? What's the process? What's the system? And by the way, we are absolutely cognizant of the 30 to 40-minute, 40, 40 uh, 45-minute rule in trying to limit these teleconferences. So this is one of the last few questions, actually, last couple of questions. We're going to try to wrap it up in the next five or ten minutes. Thank you, Sheila. With this new system, there are a lot of questions out there because they're, tr they're going from uh, 50 different systems for issuing prevailing wages to one centralized system. Yay! And we're very excited about this possibility. It's going to be nice to have some standardization. Cautiously but, excited. But at the same time, we're very cautious about how we're viewing this. Um, there are some significant changes to the new form that... Um, they're looking for information about uh, supervision, travel, special requirements, if, they're, if the position is going to involve working in locations other than the, the primary work site. So there are going to be some new variables in issuing prevailing wages. 
This means that it's even more important than ever to be really careful with defining the requirements up front because unlikely you, you will unlikely to have much back and forth with this national system. Also, it's important to know that there's probably going to be a delay. This process is probably going to be slower. Currently, it's a mail-in system. Um, they have talked about getting to the point of having online submission, but they're not there yet. Wait, the, did you say email or mail? Mail. Snail mail. Mail, like where you stick the... the you have to put a stamp on stamp it. Stamp on the envelope and, put it in and the post send it in. Exactly. That's, that's crazy. <laughs> well, they're working on, like I said, establishing an online submission format. So hopefully we'll get to that point. But in the meantime... Employers, employees need to be prepared. There's probably going to be a delay. And if one of the things you can do to minimize the delay is if you provide an email contact address for um, the person requesting the prevailing wage, it looks like they may email it back, which hopefully will, will help. So, again, be very, very careful when you're preparing that form. Also, because of the fact that there's not going to be so much back and forth, um, such as people may have experienced with state, uh, state workforce agencies, you're going to have to look at the possibility of using alternate wage surveys. Um, the problem is, is that the ONET wages don't seem to really reflect the economy yet. Um, you have to look at the, the possibility of alternate wage surveys that may be more in line with the actual wages that employers are using. Um, and so this is, again, something you want to look at up front, anticipate what the likely wage levels, classifications will be, research the alternate wage surveys that are out there, and keep in mind the time frames that you're going to be dealing with. Normally, you obtain the prevailing wage determination first because um, if you normally have to file during the validity period. The validity period can be anywhere between 90 days and a year, and we don't know where within that range this new national center is going to be falling. They may say all our prevailing wages are only good for 90 days. They may say they're good for up to a year. We're not going to know until they start issuing them. So, again, this is going to be a big change for a lot of people who are used to their state workforce agency giving them a longer period. So, they're, again, they're going to have to be paying attention to the time frame, planning their recruitment accordingly, and being really careful up front to define the requirements. Aha. Uh -huh. And what about the wage range? I know a lot of companies and businesses say, well, for a software engineer, we don't have 40000 50000 60000 It could vary from 40 to 60 or 40 to 80 depending on the person's credentials, education, qualifications, the sophistication, you know, the complexity of the job, like every business, every real-world employer. How do wage ranges fit in with the perm processing? Well, you can. I am a big fan of wage ranges. I, the good thing about the wage range is that it takes into consideration the exact kind of scenario that you're talking about. And at the same time, the employer can use this if all of a sudden circumstances change and people have to take a temporary pay cut. They, as long as they're prepared to guarantee the bottom of the wage being at least equal to the prevailing wage, the salaries can fall anywhere within that range. And that's going to be very beneficial at the I-140 stage because at the I-140 stage, you just need to demonstrate the ability to pay the bottom end of that range. Okay. And so that's part of what we at the Marty Law Firm do is when we, I guess, start the 
um, labor certification or perm processing, we actually prepare majority of the work and the paperwork, including getting the tax returns and everything in advance so that it won't come back after two years or three years of waiting saying, oops, nobody double-checked that, you know, the, the employer's tax returns, and now the I-140 petition will not be approved. And that is an, a very, very important factor to consider because a lot of businesses and law firms don't go that extra mile to do that extra work in advance for the planning, which is critical. So to try to kind of, I guess, summarize what Aaron and Pam have just gone over, which is when is the right time? Now is as good a time as any because I know we're talking about the V recession, the W recession, the L reception, Lord knows what other alphabet we could use. But, you know, with the TARP funding, with federal government funding, they're hoping that 2010 will be a little bit better than 2009. But, again, people are saying 2011 and onwards may again go back for another dip in the seesaw. Um, that's going to happen with the economy. And again, nobody has a crystal ball. Nobody knows for sure. So now's a good time as any, especially if the candidate is using up, has used up four years of the H-1 process and really needs to get something underway. Second, drafting considerations and early preparation of the case, narrowing the focus to the real world, actual minimum requirements for the job are critical. You really want to, as an employer, identify the special requirements and be prepared to explain business necessity because a lot of companies are not able to explain why they need somebody with a particular skill set, particular software, particular hardware, particular number of years of ex uh, experience in a specific skill. And you want to dif distinguish or differentiate between a short-term and long-term training to justify those requirements. We are finding that the U.S. Department of Labor reviews uh, business necessity types of issues as unduly restrictive requirements by the employer with greater scrutiny, especially when the un unemployment is high. Uh, so be careful. Be careful that you're working. You understand that these are possible reasons for an audit. We've also often been asked about, um, you know, the EB-2 versus the EB-3 requirements. Uh, the EB-2 versus EB-3 is something you as an employer are often asked Again, remember, the salary will be much higher in most EB-2 cases. This, the, the job descriptions are usually more sophisticated and complex. Uh, and people also ask about transferring the priority date from an earlier EB-3 approval case to a new EB-2 case. You want to be able to explain why that is because it's a new position, etc. cetera. Um, and then we had Pam explain a little bit about the new mailing system. We have a lot of gray areas with the new prevailing wage system, and the safest time to get started is now. I can see that Aaron is dying to say something to me. I can see him, but you all can't hear him nipping at the mic. Uh, but he's pretty much, I think, wants to talk a little bit because and explain for those who are not maybe very clear on business necessity and issues like that. Go ahead, Aaron. It's funny because I could never be a poker player. My face just gives it all away, but it's a great face for a microphone and I guess for radio. Um, the only thing I was going to mention is just um, Sheila mentioned very, very accurately about business necessity and being prepared to document. And just we hadn't really spoken much on business necessity, and I just wanted to clarify that the Department of Labor establishes through the ONET and through the um, the online service a minimum requirement of education and experience for a particular job. 
if that minimum requirement is exceeded. In other words, the employer says, hey, I understand a bachelor's in two years is what you're telling me I need, but it's my job and I know that I need a bachelor's in five years. That's considered something that would be a business necessity, and that's something that would require documentation. So requirements of an employer that exceeds the minimum requirements dictated by the, by the Department of Labor would require business necessity. And I know that Sheila was also mentioning about the EB-2 and EB-3. One major consideration that we're seeing with EB-2 and EB-3 are people that are AC-21, those guys from 2007 that got all their cases filed, that have the option to move to a new company in a higher position, that are saying, hey, back then when I filed, I was EB-3. This new job that I've taken with you, new company, is now an EB-2 position. I'd like to be able to upgrade to get that priority date to work for me in that higher type of classification. So I'm going to stop chomping at the bit, (laughs) and I'm going to pass the mic back to Sheila. Thank you, Sheila. Thank you so much, Aaron, and thank you so much, Pam. I want to be very cognizant of the time. It's been about 35 minutes. We are sensitive to you taking away precious time in the middle of the day. But hopefully, this was a very valuable and worthwhile investment of your time to really understand the nuances of how to deal with PERM in a tough economy. We hope that we have been able to guide and provide you some useful pointers today. On behalf of Aaron Finkelstein, Pam Janice, and myself, Sheila Murthy at the Murthy Law Firm, and our entire team here uh, at the Murthy Law Firm, we would be honored and delighted to help you and your business and your company to process all of your PERM cases or H-1s or green cards or any of your other immigration matters. Uh, As you know, our slogan is, we know your immigration matters because we have both the knowledge and we know how important immigration is to business, to America, and to our nation, which is a nation of immigrants. So thank you so much for joining us. On behalf of all of us, here's wishing you, your family, and all of your loved ones a very, very best wishes for the new year. May 2010 bring you much happiness and success, and may we all continue to contribute to a great and thriving U.S. economy and a world economy that does amazing with your help. Thank you for running profitable, valuable businesses, and thank you for giving us a chance to share some information with you all. Have a great day and a wonderful year ahead. Bye-bye.